Hi, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for week ending February 24th. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 to 9, broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, we're joined by author and journalist Jill Stark, telling us about her new book, Higher Sobriety. Michael Harden reveals some secrets for making the best salad dressings. Friday funny bugger Alex Ward shares a full circle moment in Perth. Jesse Dutlow and Yash Fernando bring the energy from the new musical and Juliet. And Jana Favero from the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre speaks of their emergency appeal. Nat decides water slides need a rebrand, but we start the week looking for a shoe. Triple R. So yesterday was idyllic weather, wasn't it? Yeah, really beautiful kick back. I don't think, yeah, that's not a controversial statement. No, it's not. (laughs) No one's disputing that. Um, But I have got to say there was a bit of a dark cloud over my day yesterday. Mm. I was out kind of gardening, you know, catching up with friends, but I was completely preoccupied in my head with the fact that I have lost something. Oh no, I'm very sorry to hear that. Thank you. Isn't it the worst? Exactly. A dark cloud over what would otherwise be a classically beautiful late summer day is a beautiful metaphor. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and I don't want to be dramatic, but I am going to be dramatic about it. And my approach when I've lost something is always to not look for it because I just figure the minute I start looking for it, I won't be able to find it. It will just appear. Now, this item, I it has to be in my house, like it has to be in my room, but it hasn't surfaced for a week and a half. I see. So there's no possibility of it having escaped. It's simply that it is in an unidentified area of your house. Yeah. I mean, they've ruled out aliens for the balloons, <laughs> but I don't know. That would be something okay. maybe I would yes. have to table if it goes on any longer. Okay. But it's a shoe. It's uh, I have one shoe and the second one is nowhere to be seen. And, yeah, I've I've racked my brain, retraced my steps, Mm. done all of that, and it hasn't appeared. It's not under my bed. It's not in the cupboard. It's a tempting image of a single shoe making a break for it, I suppose, like stepping on out into into freedom. But, yeah, an unrealistic one. Yeah, and it's something quite emotional about losing a shoe. Like, it just takes me back to I feel like we all lost a thong on the beach to Mm. the sea and it just felt... I don't know. It just makes it's also something melancholy that you, to it. You can't enlist other people to help search for it. Exactly, it's so pathetic. It is. <laughs> Thank you for pointing that out. But you're absolutely right. Like I'm hesitant to bring my housemates into it. Like, hey, like <laughs> trying to just be like cool and calm about. It. Like, if anyone see my shoe? Mm. If you've accidentally scooped it up in the laundry, like try my, and disguise the de- accusatory tone. My mother used to say, I think three Hail Marys for <laughs> when you wanted when you lost something. Okay. But I, and then if you found it and she heard about it, she would <laughs> claim credit. I love that. But I suspect for the things that never turned up, she just stayed harsh on her <laughs> efforts. So it looks like she's got a strike rate of 100. But. It's the same thing with people manifesting car parks. That You know, like, I knew it. I knew we were going to get one. I knew it. I manifested this. Um, and what sort of shoe is this? It's a lovely platform sandal. It's, they were originally like a hiking shoe. They were a bit of an investment, but they've been excellent quality. So, yeah, it's not easy to go out and replace. Have you got a sample? I mean, is that even a thing? What are you going to do with the other shoe? Out of sight, out of mind? Like, (sighs) put it up, you know, forget about it. Because if if you see it around, it just 
it just got this halo of hope around it. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's still a little bit of hope. But yeah, is it a recent loss? Like, cause it's been like a week okay. and a bit. And it, it has to be in the house. But, yeah, I'm not really sure, like, when to call it, when yeah. to say, well, that's it. And the wicked thing with the shoe is it's like it is useless without the other one. Like, there's a lot of kind of other items that come in pairs. The only thing I can think of now is earrings. I don't know. You could rock it. You could wear one. But I don't know. Maybe can you bring odd shoes in? Maybe. No, no. Oh, as a fashion thing. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, look, I'm just maybe like at the Met Gala or something. <laughs> Especially like oddly height shoes as well. One platform, one flat. We'll start low in Northcote or wherever you are and end up in Kim Kardashian. Yeah, so... Um, well, I'll get mum to mum please, on it. Please, everyone, text in if you've seen my shoe. Daniel, you get your mum on the Hail Marys. And I would like to see some kind of external body or something to come in and assist with these kind of matters. Yeah. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Jill Stark is a journalist, mental health advocate and author of Happy Never After, When You're Not Okay, and a best-selling 2013 debut, High Sobriety, which documented the health and social affairs reporters' year without booze and fueled a national conversation about alcohol in Australian culture. Now, 10 years on, High Sobriety gets an update with a memoir, High Sobriety, and to tell us about the first book's impact and the intervening decade, the content creator and public speaker joins us now. Jill, welcome back to Breakfasters. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. To the uninitiated, who was or is Starkers and uh, <laughs> what role has she played in your story? Uh, she's been retired. Um, <laughs> Starkers, the party girl. She was the first on the dance floor and the last to leave the party and a prolific binge drinker um, writing about Australia's binge drinking culture for the age during the week and then writing herself off at the weekends. Um, I was leaving, leading a bit of a double life. Um, but yeah, I, I think I grew up in Scotland, had my first drink at 13 and was just your bog standard weekend binge drinker until the hangover started to hit a bit too hard and the things that I was writing about for the age started to overlap in, with my life in mm. quite an alarming way. And yeah, I decided to take the year off the booze and led to a book that thrust me into a public spotlight that I wasn't quite prepared for. And suddenly I became the poster girl for sobriety, which was not, not a... Um, well, it's not a title that I'd ever looked for, but certainly people, when the book came out, felt very... A lot of people felt that their relationship with alcohol was very tied to mine, and I think they could relate to that sort of party party girl, party boy persona. Yeah, it's, mm. it's, it's. I think my story really resonated with people because it was quite a universal experience. Yeah, and you're championing of sobriety. You've got a drink named after you. <laughs> That's right. We've come a long way. Um, so here in Brunswick, there's a non-alcoholic bar, Brunswick Aces, and um, I'm an ambassador for them. And they named a cocktail called the Stark Reality, <laughs> which I think really sums up what sobriety feels for me this time around it's been it'll be four years in june since i quit um drinking and you know like the stark reality of sobriety is it, it can be confronting and it's raw and it's real and it strips you bare but it's really rewarding and you get to see yourself in stark clarity and um that can be that can be a bit full-on sometimes but it also allows yourself to do um a lot of work that you might otherwise have been ignoring or um, numbing out things with alcohol mm. what are some of the dangers of writing a book I mean, uh, 10 years ago, what were your fears? Did you, uh, you're worried about being judgy or other people judging you or judgment around alcohol appears to loom quite large? Yeah, I, I think 
it was a it was a dream come true to to write a book. I never thought it would be about my year <laughs> off the booze. I think my family were more surprised than anyone else about that. But um, I, I think I hadn't prepared for my story to be sort of um, adopted by by the public in the way that it did. Um, and yeah, as you say, quite a lot of people were quite defensive about my decision not to drink. Like I always knew that um, sobriety was going to be a challenge for me. I just didn't think it would be challenging for other people around me. But if you're the sort of drunkest party girl in the room and you take yourself out of that room or you start drinking soda water, then someone else has to step up to that <laughs> um, that plate. And um, that can be confronting for people. And y- y- my sobriety, I was very... Um, clear and I, I still to this day I'm, I'm very careful about the way I talk about this like I'm not evangelical about sobriety I'm not out here trying to convert anyone I'm not judging anyone else who drinks it's entirely your choice for me personally my drinking was starting to impact on my life in a way that I couldn't really ignore any longer um, and that's why I chose to just to stop but yeah I, I, I really think it's important that people in the sober space don't do the finger wagging thing or try to say that well you know once you stop drinking your life is perfect because it really isn't you know sobriety doesn't remove your problems it eliminates them in in many ways and and that can be challenging but it can also be quite fulfilling because I always say you know if if the worst thing about sobriety is you get to feel all your feelings then the best thing about sobriety is you get to feel all your feelings Mm. you know it's the it's the highs and the lows Mm. And when you oh sorry when you were updating the book, I was f- fascinated to kind of read a little bit about the discussions you were having with the psychologist Veronica. And only if you're comfortable, yeah. I suppose, talking about it. I was very interested in this idea of aligning behaviour with values and the idea of sort of discovering life's meaning. Can you talk about? Yeah. yeah. So um, when high sobriety came out and I was thrust into this public spotlight and I pretty much had everything I'd ever wanted or thought I ever wanted. You know, I was successful journalist. I had a, a, a best-selling book, much to my great surprise. I was dating a footballer. Don't do that, by the way. That's, <laughs> that's not the recipe for happiness. Anyway, I, I felt very much like this is these are all the things that would make you happy. And, and in fact, you know, life kind of fell apart for me and that led to me writing my second book, Happy Never After, which is in that book I talked to Veronica, my psychologist, about trying to rebuild myself from the rubble of that um, crisis, uh, the mental health crisis that I had after that, when you sort of, you've got everything you've ever wanted in life and you find out that it's not enough because underneath it you don't feel like you're enough. And so the next step for me was going into therapy and trying to unpack all of that. And it felt like I'd gone really deep in therapy, but it was the drinking that wasn't allowing me to get to that next level. And um, Veronica would never say to me, you should or shouldn't do a certain thing. It's never that prescriptive. But she did ask me to consider a question, and that was, is drinking getting you closer to the life that you want or further away? And that sort of really stayed with me. And she, the work, some of the work we'd done in, in therapy was, was thinking about values. How do you want to live your life? What are the values that are important to you? And whenever you're making decisions, go back to those values and try to align the decisions with um those things and so I did think about that and when I talk about values I don't want people to say that that's a a judgment a moral judgment on drinking or not drinking but for me it was my values of living a life of integrity and honesty and kindness to myself and to others and um, I was doing really destructive things when I was drunk that didn't really align with that I was blowing up my friendships because I was irrational and all the emotional issues that you could deal with in the cold light of day in therapy when you're drunk that kind of goes out the window and so I was texting and calling friends and saying things that I later regretted and waking up and going oh you know and some of those friendships didn't survive that process and I thought like where is this going to end up so that's what I mean by values it's like what does my to live a, a, a fully 
authentic life um, for me, um, one that is full of meaning and purpose. It's it, I can't continue just to write myself off every weekend and waste my my days hungover um, and apologising for things that I don't really remember doing. Yeah, with the, when you talk about like the, the hangovers, there was like I think um, a point in the book where you describe like when you were younger, they used to be kind of really like fun days under the doona reading the paper, but then as you got older, they just became a bit more debilitating and I can definitely relate to that. Do you think it kind of ultimately comes back to, and it, of course we're bombarded with all this information of why we should quit alcohol, but it's like this sense of time, like that learning to value your own time and how you want to yeah, spend I mean, it the older you get one thing that happens is that the hangovers are harder to recover from yeah. and you don't need as much alcohol to make you feel hungover the next day and that certainly was the case after um i quit drinking the first time i find that when i went back to it the hangovers were were more intense probably because i'd had that break um but i think yeah the older you get you start to be aware of the passage of time and you know at the end of the the original book um my best friend who i grew up with in scotland her her five-year-old son on Unexpectedly died, which was an absolutely horrendous experience for for everyone. Um, obviously, particularly for for her and her family. And you know, I dedicate the book to Judah, but and I say that life's too short to be wasted. And and you do start to think, well, how many more weekends can I? hide under the doona when I'm I was I was nearly 35 when I stopped drinking the first time I'm now in my 40s and um yeah you find that there's so much more time in the day when you're not hung over all the time um the, you know the one of the great untapped resources that I wasn't aware of was Sunday mornings that, that I now can get up and go for an ocean swim um at sunrise rather than like sleeping off my days but yeah certainly when you're younger you don't think about it as much because you think you've got all the time in the world mm. um but you never know what's around the corner and I think the, the pandemic really taught us that didn't it that we yeah. like life is short and we don't know what's coming next so like for, for a lot of people I think during the pandemic it forced them to look at their drinking habits because I think a lot of us thought oh I'm just a social drinker and then all of our social outlets were taken away <laughs> yeah I remember always having to reckon with taking my recycling out and like doing <laughs> insections I'm like something's got to change here what did you do during lockdowns well um when the pandemic hit i was only about nine months into my second crack at sobriety and i did have a moment of thinking oh you could just get on it i mean if you can't have a drink in a in an apocalypse then then (laughs) when can you and you know my family are all in scotland my brother's in singapore and i just thought the borders were shut and it took a very long time obviously to be able to see them again and it was incredibly stressful we all had our different challenges on different fronts i live alone i know that some people who lived with family would have gladly swapped with me after a few months um but i I thought about it and i again thought back to what the reasons that I, I don't drink and one of my main reasons for quitting this time around were, were for mental health reasons that the anxiety you know that horrendous hangover anxiety that you get where you wake up with this like overarching sense of dread and regret about what you did the night before and just the way that alcohol breaks down in your body actually makes anxiety worse so I thought like you know this is a very difficult period in history that we're about to enter is being hungover going to help me through that or Mm. is it going to make it worse? And I I think I knew the answer to that. So I thought if alcohol is the answer to the question that I'm asking the wrong question. So I asked myself, what do I need to get through this and and put things in place that were a little bit more healthy coping mechanisms than than alcohol? But, you know, we know that people's drinking went up during that period because it was stressful and because the alcohol industry, which is not known for its corporate social responsibility, 
like very aggressively marketed to us the idea that um, the way to get through the pandemic was to drink. And they had all sorts of sales, like they had some of the messaging was confinement sale or stay in, drink up, and you could get home delivered alcohol very easily. And, mm. and the sales did go up. And But I think it had two two effects the pandemic it had the effect of some people started to drink more but also it led towards the end of it more people choosing to drink or um, to follow the kind of sober curious path so I think the pandemic sort of turbo boosted a sober curious movement that was already on the rise yeah mm. definitely I remember in the third pandemic speaking to the guy at my local bottle shop and him telling me that um, a non-alcoholic beer was like fast becoming their, their biggest selling product which is and extraordinary that was, yeah. isn't it I mean like when I first wrote High Surprise I remember having a conversation with a very senior person in the Australian Hotels Association who told me that well, I said, oh, when are we going to see a, a pub, a non-alcoholic bar? Because they were starting to have them in Ireland back then, yeah. a country not known for its temperance. And I said, when will we see that here? And he laughed at me and said, well, that's never going to work. You couldn't have a pub with no booze in Australia. And now, as you say, um, some of the non-alcoholic beers are actually outselling gen- uh, standard beer in some bottle shops. And I think people are really seeing that um, there's a different way and the more options you have, the more normalised sobriety becomes. Mm. Or not even just sobriety, but people wanting to have a little break or go out and have a few non-alcoholic drinks mixed up with their normal drinks. Mm. Can I ask as well, because I've had a few um, experiments with going off alcohol for a certain amount of time, um, for, for product productivity, and also I have like quite my I, anxiety that goes up and down. In your experience, do you find that abstinence is, is easier than moderation? I mean, it's a, it's a really personal choice, but I think for me, I did try moderation for a while, and and I, I did did okay with it for a while, for a bit, but then old habits kind of crept back in, and I think for a lot of people, it's quite difficult to master moderation because the very nature of the drug that we're trying to moderate is it will leave you craving more, and it it, it works on our dopamine receptors, the the brain's pleasure center, which makes us crave more of it. Um, I find that the mental gymnastics required to sort of constantly bargain with myself and with this substance, like oh. I'll just I'll only drink till ten o'clock, or I'll, mm. I'll only I'll drink water every second drink, or I'll only drink on the weekends. It just was exhausting, and I find it a lot easier just to not drink at yep. all. And these drinks, the uh, the non-alcoholic beers and wines and spirits, are, were a really good substitute for me. For for other people, we have, they have to be careful. If you've got a history of significant substance dependency, that drinks that smell and taste and look like alcohol can can be triggering. But for me, I find them a really good substitute. Mm. Well, high sobriety, the ten-year follow-up to high sobriety is out now via Scribe Publishing, and we've been sport. Speaking with jet-setting author Jill Stark. Thanks very much, Jill. Thanks so much. Melbourne's own Triple R. I'm hungry. I want something to eat. Something with a crunch and very sweet. For food include, it's time to speak with Michael Harden. Morning, Michael. Good morning. Uh, are we in the salad days of salad? <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's amazing. I, I, I can leave now. Yeah. <laughs> the segment is done. No, yeah, um, I think so. It's sort of like it's always good to address salad every now and again, sort of keep it on the radar. Um, I feel like in the intro, you've probably been sold a little bit of a pup because it's like the best salad dressings, homemade and bottled. Mm. I am like a vampire with garlic cloves and a cross when it comes to bottled salad dressing, I have to say. It's sort of like, I feel like it's one of those ones where it's like, really? Do you need like the extra packaging? Do you need the extra sugar? Do you know? And I'm sure there's probably some good ones there, but it's kind of like when you can do it at home with ingredients that most people that cook at all Mm. um, will have in their cupboard, I think it's sort of like it's best to just kind of 
you know, do your own. Yeah, I think I am with you on that. I'm mm. not a very good cook, but I can make, I can bang together a dressing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's sort of like, and you can do, like, the good things about dressings is that it's sort of like, you know, you can have, like, you should have a few in your repertoire because then you can do things like just if you kind of can't think of what to eat or whatever and you've got some spuds in the in the cupboard and you can just kind of like you know whip up a dressing to go with it like just to coat those and that's a good meal mm. you know it's kind of like you know one of those lazy meals like these are there's a dressing that i've sort of come across um in the last sort of year or so um that was from it's from a um place in sydney called cornersmith which is a sort of a cafe cooking school place and they're, they're all about um using using everything no waste you know all of that sort of stuff and they've got this really great um dressing called the sad herb reviver <laughs> dressing and it's like one that you can use all those wilted herbs that you've bought in the bottom that's they're in the bottom of the crisper and you can like even then when they're soft and you can turn them into this dressing so it's sort of like it's basically with like lemon garlic um, a couple of cups of those some olive oil and then you just chop them all up and blitz them and it turns into a sort of like almost like a pesto like yeah. sauce and it's sort of like you know mm-hmm. dill parsley doesn't matter coriander you know tarragon whatever can go in there and you can sort of do all those things you can add chili flakes if you want a little bit of little bit of heat in there and it's sort of like and then just top like and then that will go over you know as I say, potatoes, but mm. also, you know, Yum. steamed zucchini or green beans, or you can even, like, it's a thing, it's, you could even use it on meat, you know, as a sort of like almost like a chimichurri on a, on a steak or something. You can, like, that's really good when you put a little bit of extra, extra chili flakes in And I guess there's so. also the taste of satisfaction in knowing that you've saved these isn't herbs. It, isn't it great? You know, yeah. because, like, so how many times have you kind of, like, many. hoped nobody was watching as you threw <laughs> yet another bunch of expensive <laughs> herbs into the thing? It's sort of like, well, I, I, I used eight of those leaves for that recipe and now it's sort of like I'm throwing the rest in the bin or the compost or whatever. Yeah, Yeah, that green juice on the plastic. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. Can I get your professional opinion? I do a similar dressing Mm -hmm. to you just mentioned. Not as many fresh herbs, usually a bit of dill, but I throw in some seeded mustard. Is oh, that yeah. kind of... Okay, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. Mustard in a salad dressing, I'm a big fan of. Okay, like, you know, great, I don't, I don't love it every time. No. Um, you know, you want to, again, focus in on the on the thing because it's like, it's generally, it's like you're looking at different types of salad dressings for different types of salads. So mm-hmm. you've got, so like, in kind of the classic European cooking, I guess we're talking here, um, you've got three salads. You've got a green salad, which is basically just leaves, and then you've got the non-green salad, which is sort of vegetables and beans and pasta and things like that. And then you've got the composed salad, which when you're moving into stuff that's more like like a Caesar or a Nicoise or mm-hmm. something like that, that has a meat component in it or a protein component. And so each of those need their own own dressing yeah um i'm a big fan of like a really quite a plain leaf salad and um a vinaigrette so it's sort Gorgeous. of like you know your basic vinaigrette because the thing i love about vinaigrettes it can be as simple or as complicated complex as you want mm-hmm. so if you've um just got some really really beautiful leaves and you don't want to over complicate it too much you can just like dress it as you go like make the dressing as you go so you you always need a little bit of salt because mm-hmm. the because the three things in in a vinaigrette is um you've got fat and salt and uh, acid. Okay. So those things. So it's sort of like it's always good to do a little bit of salt. If you've got really good leaves, a great way to do it is to sprinkle a little bit of salt over the leaves first and just leave it there for you know, a few minutes so the salt melts. Okay. And then you can just, you know, your oil and vinegar in, in the sort of proportions that you want and then just toss it through. That's beautiful. Quick question on the, the leaf salad. Do you think that's had just like a plain leaf salad's had a bit of a revival? 
Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I think it's sort gorgeous. of like I think the, the sort of the simplicity yeah. of it is so good, and sometimes it's sort of like I. Uh, you know, I've always eaten everything, and you know, there's been times in my life where it's sort of like, is there, is there something? Are there, is there green food in the world? It's yeah. sort of like I'm just like, you know, chomping into burgers. <laughs> and um, but it's, you know, I think that there's something about there's a green salad when you know the leaves are really good, and mm. I think it's maybe it's also with with also also more aware of good ingredients as well. So like, you know, you can go and you can get really good quality leaves and stuff. And it's mm. like there's sometimes now like I'll be in the greengrocer or the organic store or whatever and see a lettuce and my mouth will start watering. And I'm like, <laughs> what is wrong with you? Yeah. Like, you changed my I know. I love an iceberg lettuce. Oh, yeah. I've got to say. I love yeah, the yeah. crunch. Because oh, I always say it's like a drink and a meal. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And it sort of and it adds – it's the texture that it yeah. adds to things. Beautiful. Just, just amazing. So, um, yeah, with the – yeah, the vinaigrette. So it's sort of like you can do that really simple one. I like to do um, a. I like to dissolve the salt in the um, vinegar first. So, but that if you're doing like a three part salad dressing, make make sure you always put the vinegar into your jar or glass first, and then the salt because the the salt won't dissolve if you put oil in there. Uh. So you need to dissolve the salt first and then put the oil in. And then there's sort of like you know, and then you can use that really basic thing and and the classic. One is one part vinegar to three parts oil. I've heard people go one four. I tend to go 50 50. I, I like a more acid quality in mine. I like the way that um, the vinegar will cook the ingredients a little bit. It sort of like will wilt the lettuce slightly and that sort of stuff. I also, um, with like a leaf salad, there's another good thing that you can do it's, it, that it sort of becomes part of the dressing, but you mince a red onion. First, really finely mince a red onion, put that in the bottom of the bowl, put the leaves on top, and then when you're going to dress it, pour your salad dressing on there, but don't toss so that salad dressing sits on the on the um, minced onion and it cooks it a little bit and soaks in so it's sort of like the onion becomes a little softer it's a little bit cooked and then you like toss it through all your leaves and so you've just got this little speck of really beautifully dressed cooked vinegar cooked onion what's the rule of thumb sorry okay (laughs) i just was thinking about this on the weekend rule of thumb for like timing dressing the salad Mm -hmm. out from serving yeah, depends on what you want to do because sometimes, as I say, that sort of like sometimes it's good to have a little bit of cooking with the with the vinegar and the oil cooking the food so it softens it a little bit. If you're really sort of just wanting to do your leaves as the sort of like central mode of this, then, you know, as quickly as possible before it happens. You know, mm-hmm. it's sort of like I think and that's when something like if you've got really good salad leaves, that's when that sort of very simple... Um, dressing of salting first and then oil and vinegar, particularly if you've got and you know if you, just respect yourself a little bit and buy <laughs> whatever you can get for like the best that you can afford of your vinegar and your oil. You know mm-hmm. it's kind of like because it's it's so there's nowhere to hide. Mm. You know when you're using those few ingredients, um, you want to kind of be and you know and if you like a salad and you like a dressing, it's sort of like just buy some decent salt. And uh, you know some good oil and some good vinegar. Like- uh, can a dressing more? Can I mean you, the name of that dressing implies that it, you can almost save a salad. Yes. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Like doing so much heavy lifting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's sort of like, and that's what happens with, you know, something like a, you know, potato salad with like a creamy potato salad dressing with a, you know, my, I've got a, my sister-in-law's American and she does this amazing potato salad, which, you know, it's sort of like, of course, being American, it's very creamy and it's like, but it's like, you know, it's got mayonnaise and it's got mustard and it's got cornichon and it's got capers and it's sort of like all that sort of stuff. And you can, you know, if you want, you can, you know, chuck some 
bacon in if you eat bacon, you know, a little bit of like chopped up bacon through it as well. You know, there's that sort of stuff. And it's sort of like there you've got some steamed potatoes and then it turns into this like pile of deliciousness. Mm. So it's like, you know, I, I, lo- I do love a salad dressing. It's sort of like it should be like as important as the as the main That's ingredients right. that you're using. You know, it's because it's sort of like, you know, why are you going to use substandard ingredients? Mm. And if you want to change your diet, a mm-hmm. good salad dressing can turn your life around. Oh, absolutely. Life-changing. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm. It's sort of like in the mouth-watering thing, it's sort of like, again, a kind of like going back to the vinaigrette that, that I like to use. There's, an, there's a couple of like hacks you can do on that as well. That One that I got from um, Andrew McConnell, who owns a bunch of restaurants in Melbourne. Um, he, with his vinaigrette, he puts just a few drops of soy sauce in oh. as well so it gives you that it's so good it's sort of like just a little bit a little bit of so you get this umami so it, it's like the, the salad dressing suddenly has another dimension wow. to it it's sort of like it's it's got a little more on the sides so it's sort of like and i kind of and other ones like if i'm dressed using a vinaigrette to dress a, a salad that's got avocado in it i like to put a few drops of tabasco into the vinaigrette as well because it just adds that little bit of heat and a little bit of spice and this is where well. you start to get your signature salad dressings exactly yeah. exactly and that's the great thing about them i love the sort of simple building blocks that you can add the stuff that you want like some people like to chop up chives Mm. you know and sort of like really finely diced chives in their vinaigrette or you can do things like you know with mustard Mm. um you can i I like to add mustard and garlic into it as well and you get the garlic and you you salt the garlic like chop it up salt the garlic and then smush it with the back of a fork so it turns into a paste okay and then so then you can mix it through with that and then sort of with some dijon mustard as well or you know you can go hotter if you want as well but that one is a really beautiful sort of creamy vinaigrette it's sort of mm. like it's thicker and it's kind of like you know can really make a meal it's yeah. great again great with avocados and what about praise in a bottle get out <laughs> <laughs> uh, michael harden mouthwatering as always thanks so much no worries triple r on fm digital online and via the app Like Alex, we'll just take time out from gigging around the country to join us in the studio. Morning, Alex. Good morning. <laughs> I'm back. Yes, welcome back. I've taken a break from my one one pop portion of the tour. <laughs> that I've taken a break. How was Perth? It was actually very good. Very good. Uh, I had a, a situation. I did want to talk about a situation. It was just quite a funny thing that happened. Now, this story starts five and a half years ago. Okay, great. So strap in. We've got I'll time. I'll fill you in on everything that's yeah. happened. <laughs> How long do we have? Three hours? Yeah. Uh, so I went to Perth. I did my first ever solo show in Perth. So wow. a baby comedian six, yeah. six years ago, I think it was. And I, um, so I did my first ever show there. So I hadn't been back since. It was good, but it did kind of end strangely. And so I did always have this feeling like if I went back, does every show end like the show I did? That it did? <laughs> yeah. And so what happened was throughout the show, I was like, oh, this is interesting. Because what happened in that show is about five minutes into the show, four guys in their late 20s sort of entered and sat right in the front. Yes, there were free seats in the front row. I don't really want to talk about that. As yeah. I said, it was my first show. But they come in and something I I hadn't seen before but also had never seen again since is they just had like multiple bags of chips in their hand, <laughs> which I haven't seen at a comedy show before, but I thought, okay. Um, now, I didn't realise this at the time, but 
I don't know if we're allowed to say this on morning radio, but they were stoned out of their minds, basically. Yeah. And I found that out after, but I should have I should have known because what they would do with their stoned heads had tried to decide that the perfect time to eat the chips wouldn't be while I was talking, but rather whenever I took a, a moment to pause. <laughs> amazing. Because it does seem like they're, they're like, let's not be rude and chip over her. But then it's like, but then everyone can hear the chips. So <laughs> yeah. I'd be like, and that is that story. And, yeah. like, oh. <laughs> and so they did this throughout the show. And uh, I never even expected these guys to come to me. Like these guys had like a, like glasses on the back of their neck and their head. They were yeah. like, you know, the sort of guys you're like, where'd you park your jet ski? <laughs> How'd you even get in here? Is there a canal somewhere? How did you get all the way to the front door? But on the after the show, they were super nice. They came, they're like, oh, I loved it. Like they were talking real Perth. They're like, oh, great show. We loved it. And they're like, oh, yeah, sorry about the chips. You know, we're just a bit stoned. I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And then they were like, all right. They're like, let's go. I was like, what? They're like, let's go. We're taking you for dim sum. Oh, and I'd never met these four blokes, and I was like, I don't, I don't know if this is the safest decision, but also I, I really couldn't afford to buy dinner at the time, so yeah. I was like, I think this is just something I'm going to have to risk. So I was like, I really want these dim sims. So they, I was like, all right, let's go. And so I went out with these four guys. I know their names still, by the way. Oh, uh, let's hear. Luke, Anthony, Kane. There was uh, another one, and he – I don't remember his name. Okay. <laughs> Let's call him Trevor. That's called, yeah, probably, Trevor. Uh, so we all go out. Now, this is, like, something I'd never seen before is Luke, who I did stay in touch with, Luke. Um, we go in. We get the table. This is this is Perth confidence for you. He walks straight past the table. He goes straight to the, the beer fridge, pulls out beers, walks <gasps> behind the counter and puts them in the deep freezer, and then comes back, and he's like, they're never cold enough here. Wow. And he's like, they don't care. They don't care at all. Like, he, you can just do that in Perth. You can just go and make your food colder or drinks colder if you're not happy. Anyway, so he does that. And then, guess what? I didn't, I don't know if you can tell, but I didn't die that night. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, huge relief. I can't believe so, that. Yeah, so this was like six years ago. And then I added Luke on Instagram. So I sort of would see him around. And we had touched base once when I was in Adelaide. He's like, I'm also in Adelaide. But wow. he didn't, we didn't end up, like, connecting up. And he didn't come to my show. But... Uh, you'd like each other's posts and stuff like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like he'd like my posts of my dog and I'd like his post of, I don't know, his dirt bike or something. <laughs> um, and then, uh, but it's such a beautiful story because I was in Perth last week and I was doing my show and I had six nights there and I'd done all five. It got to Sunday and I was like, I hadn't even thought of them. Sunday night, the last show, Wow. I look up after I walk out and there sits Luke Kane and Anthony, <gasps> and they'd come back to the show. They six came, years later. Six years later, they came back, and I walk out afterwards. And With chips? No chips. Ah, they've they, learnt. They've grown up a lot. <laughs> I, well, this is the first thing one of them said to me. I walked out, and they go, you've gotten better. I was like, okay. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> so you. You'd hope so. <laughs> but also, six years, you'd hope so. But also, maybe you're just eating less chips during the show. <laughs> yeah. So I sound a lot clearer uh but then we they were like all right let's go and we went and got dim sum again oh oh reunion yeah reunion except i was like let's keep it traditional yeah we tried to go to the same place we couldn't find it we just hadn't walked we found it right after it was two two blocks away but we went to a different place but they also traditionally did pay for me which wasn't necessary but i was like well if it's tradition yes (laughs) it's tradition that you pay what about the beers in the deep freezer was that tradition maintained no there were we couldn't access the oh, fridge at this place. Okay. Or it was a regretful. <laughs> um, this is quite bad to me, but how did the boys age? How did they look? Um, fine. Well, 
One of them has aged quite well. The one who wasn't <laughs> drinking at dinner. <laughs> yeah. The others, no, they're fine. We've yeah. all aged. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, okay. I didn't want to ask them how I'd aged either. <laughs> what about um, eating? In, how are you finding audiences after lockdowns? Are they socialised? I don't know. Well, did Perth really? I mean, they had a, like a, a lockdown away from the rest of Australia, but mm. they weren't really locked down per se like we were. The Perth audience is great. I loved Perth, by the way. I think I'm. I think I'm a Perth girl now. Oh, really? I think I'm. It's into good to it. learn that about yourself. Well, I'm from Brisbane, so I get the sun, but then it's so much closer to the beach. Yeah. yeah. I was a bit worried about shark attacks, but I just had this plan. I would always stay closer to the shore than whoever else I was around. That's right. I was yeah. like, Well, they will be taken. <laughs> I think they'll be taken. Also, first. on Trev's jet ski, you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. Mm. The other thing I forgot to say was we actually that that first night it escalated. We stayed out till three a.m. Hey. It was a bit extreme, but I'm glad it didn't happen this time. Beautiful. I just can't. I can't do that anymore. Wow, you have grown up. <laughs> thank you. Um, thank you. Is there anything else on your in your life that you can bring us up to speed on? Yeah, I'm angry at Google. Oh. <laughs> I'm really angry at Google. I need it too much, yet I think it has too much power. But I also feel like Google isn't – I don't know how to sum it up. I don't think they try hard enough for how much power they have. Mm. Yeah. I'm angry at Google because I need it for everything. Like yeah. even – I've driven to Triple R ten times, and mm. even this one I was like, better use Google Maps because I'm probably wrong. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's how I feel all the time. But at the moment I've realised someone was like, what, what's your deal with your passwords? Like I had to change computers. I was like, oh, no, I don't know anything. Like, Google, like Google, you know when you go to log into any website and it's like, would you like to use Google? I'm like, yes, of course. Yes, I want to use Google because Google knows everything about me and I know nothing about me at this point. <laughs> I don't know where I've lost my sense of self, but Google knows everything about me. Someone's like, yes, but what I hate about Google is at the moment it's got the two-factor authentication. Oh, uh, yeah. But I'm like, it's not good enough. I'm like, why even bother? Because it's so hackable to me. Is They're it? like, oh, if you're Alex... Prove it. Like, open YouTube and press 38. You're like, yeah, well, I'm pretty sure anyone else could do that. Classic Alex. (laughs) Don't make me go, because I don't know if other people probably aren't like this, but I'm actually often just leave my phone at the other end of the house and I'll be on my laptop like, oh, I don't always sit with it. So I have to go get it and I'm just like, oh, God, I just want them to do something better or skip that completely. Don't waste my time. If Just do it. It's so hackable anyway. Mm. I want them to do something only I could do. I want them to be like, oh, Alex, are you? If you're Alex, you have 30 seconds to upload a photo of yourself (laughs) with, like, discount goat soap and a single vodka cruiser. (laughs) I'd be like, already in my hands. Um, Are you still saving for a jetpack? Yes. Okay. Yeah, for people want to know why, they're just going to have to come to my show. All right. Because I don't want to go into that. No, I, I could briefly go into No, that. no, you don't have to. I just want to know. Let, I just want everyone to know that you're if doing it. If technology increases, I will definitely get a jetpack. I don't have the money right now. I've got some savings. Yeah. yeah. Which could be going towards a jetpack depending on the technology. <laughs> <laughs> the closest I've come is wearing a backpack on a plane. So oh, <laughs> a jetpack at this I'm, stage. I bet like, that put everyone adjacent to you at ease. Yeah. <laughs> um, where uh, so uh, any gigs before the comedy festival that we can check you out, or you want us to save our Alex? Uh, I you know. If you're in doubt, up, yes. If you're in doubt, definitely seek me out so that you can be like, we definitely want more of that. <laughs> yes. If you're certain, then just come to my show. Beautiful. Um, I've got things around. Like I'm doing my show at Comedy Republic, and I have uh, like a spot there on the fifteenth, and I have a few at Catfish and Fitzroy. Coming up. So just, like, check out my Instagram, Wardy, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Alex Ward, <laughs> Melbourne comedian. 
Instagram. Uh, check that out. I'm like always tagged in the posters. Yeah. Sorry, I'm, I should be clear. I probably will forget to post them. <laughs> Just check my ta- tagged images. Uh, Alex Ward, same for a jetpack at the Comedy Festival, but between then, capture around town. Thanks very much. Thank you. Triple R. Max Martin is the five-time Grammy Award-winning Swedish songwriter behind 25 Billboard number one hits more than any other musician, aside from Lennon and McCartney. His catalogue of pop anthems forms the foundation of the new musical And Juliet, which asks what would happen next if Juliet didn't end it all over Romeo. Created by David West Reid, the Emmy-winning writer from Schitt's Creek, the production enjoyed successful runs on the West End and Broadway and makes its Australian premiere this week at the Regent Theatre. And to tell us about it, we're joined in the studio by two stars of Anne Juliet, Yash Fernando and Jesse Dutlow. Welcome both of you to Breakfasters. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> <laughs> now, Britney Spears meets the Bard? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yes. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, no, we have so many Britney Spears songs in the show and it's a total treat. <laughs> and we both get to sing at least one each. Yeah, I have one. Like, I get one. <laughs> What what did you know about Romeo and Juliet? What did you know about Max Martin? What did you know about anything before you uh, joined this juggernaut? Um, well, like, Romeo and Juliet-wise, I mean, high school, right? Yeah. Lots of people read Romeo and Juliet in school. Um, and then there's also the films, you know, of course, Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then Max Martin, like... Total, like the Shakespeare of pop, essentially, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I studied songwriting for two years, and um, that's like the the gold that is where that's who we idolize as songwriters. So, um, yeah, absolutely. These songs are things that we've lived and experienced with for our whole lives. Mm. Um, I grew up, uh, you know, early 2000s, I was born Mm. in the mid 90s. These are our bread and butter as, you know, as musicians as well. It's interesting. Oh, sorry, please. When you fall down that that rabbit hole of Max Martin and then you you slowly discover that every single song that you've been (laughs) singing has been written by Max Martin. And I think this show was like that, the, the way I kind of fell down that hole. And then you, you know, find a Spotify playlist and it's like Max Martin tracks and you're like, wait, I wrote this song as well and this one and this one. Well, and I was just, yeah, so fascinated to hear, yeah, the intersection, as you say, of like, I suppose, a, a pop genius and of course a, a bard who has been studied for centuries. Mm. I suppose, yeah, could you tell us a little bit more about the intersection of the craft of, of songwriting and the craft of performing? as well as a sort of an actor absolutely i think what's really unique about this show is as a jukebox musical the characters that we embody actually mean the words that they're singing and so Mm. when you start singing i kissed a girl by Katy perry (laughs) you're you're not Katy perry you are still you know i'm still may um yash is still francois Mm -hmm. and we actually mean the words that are coming out of these (laughs) um the song that the whole audience knows um but we're still staying true to that story that's being told and that's really exciting when the two work together really well um which yeah i think the audience is gonna just die for it <laughs> absolutely and also like david westreed has written a beautiful book and yeah. has been a total genius and has been able to allow us to has just created such a work that that allows these lyrics to really speak and really um I don't know, be truthful. We're not working too hard. We're not trying to figure out how we're going to tell this story through these lyrics that might not be um, serving the story. But because of David Westreed's work, 
it's so easy for us mm. I'm able to kind of just do that. What's it been thing. like as artists and songwriters to deconstruct or live inside these songs that are ubiquitous? And, yeah. and what have you learned about pop anthems as being part of this show? Well, Max is such a brilliant songwriter mm. and the world of Shakespeare, which is so poetic and beautiful and dreamy and tragic <laughs> um is paired so well with these pop anthems and at times the most like sensitive gorgeous um you know lyrics um so sorry repeat your question for me <laughs> yeah, we're, uh, living inside these songs yeah. that are so they're almost like fun wallpaper yeah but you actually have to get inside it and deconstruct absolutely. it absolutely i think what i've learned is that um these songs actually are they told a story of their own long before Anne mm. Juliet existed and the exciting thing is to be able to step into that and adapt those songs mm. and reimagine them in ways that you've never seen and heard them before. Yeah. So, yeah. And I guess, obviously, a song, a play, every sort of form of art has a, a trajectory and a sort of a structure. Can you tell us a little bit about your individual character's sort of emotional trajectory? Yeah. I mean, um, I love my character, Francois, as I should. <laughs> um, and I love his journey that he goes through this show. Um, it's a journey of self-love. Um, he walks out and the first song that Francois sings, he sings a little bit of Show Me Love, um, which we absolutely adore. And yeah, it, it, he goes through this journey of, of I guess, Anna, a director, has really explained, well, it's almost like The Wizard of Oz. We, we, we become this group of friends and we go on this journey and we discover so many things. So Francois discovers so much by meeting May, by meeting Juliet. Um, he has this relationship with his father, which I love exploring. We have uh, Hayden T, who plays Lance. My father is an absolutely amazing performer, and we get to kind of navigate that relationship that I think so many people will relate to. You know, family isn't always the easiest thing to to navigate in your life. Um, and then you throw like love, and you throw relationships into that as well. Um, so yeah, there's a definite huge journey that I just can't wait to keep keep exploring because we haven't even done previews yet. Mm. We're about to begin previews this weekend. <laughs> oh, really? yeah. um, so there's going to be so much to explore. Yeah, the cool thing about um, the two characters that we play is that you've never heard of May and Francois mm. before. They don't mm. exist in um, Shakespeare's original play. So um, May, who I play, is written into the story, uh, just comes out of nowhere, and um, they're Juliet's best friend. And for May, the journey is... Um, discovering their gender identity, um, discovering love for the first time, and um, and yeah, finding out how to be a good friend um, to Juliet while also honouring their own journey and, and in, uh, stepping into their own moment because we all deserve that as, you know, friends. There's no, you know, obviously Juliet is the main character, but um, all of our stories matter, mm. which is really exciting to be in a piece that um, accepts and celebrates that. Would you say Romeo and Juliet's just like the starting point for this show rather than an adaptation because I suppose like Romeo and Juliet was like you know a fantastic like passionate play but also like very defined gender roles so mm. this is kind of tipping everything on its head by the sounds absolutely. of it absolutely um, the characters like 
you know, the nurse in, in Romeo and Juliet is basically there for slapstick comedy and, you know, uh, <laughs> but in this piece, it's um, Casey Donovan who plays Angelique. Mm-hmm. And we, she has a name now. That's like amazing. Um, and it's something that is like living and breathing and people will be able to relate so beautifully to it. Um, there's something that in, everyone can take away from it. Do you speak Shakespearean, like the, the dots and these and all that? Uh, a little bit, <laughs> but it's mostly, uh, you know, almost entirely a modern. Uh, adaptation. Yeah, and what's the what's it like being in such an epic ensemble? Like Rob Mills is in yeah. the show as well. He was just recently crowned uh, Moomba. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, we crown all heard a lot about it. <laughs> royalty in the cast. <laughs> uh, what, what is what is that like? You all, you know, is it a party atmosphere? Is it is it hard sweat and tears, or is it a bit of both? Um, definitely a bit of both. It's. A total treat because we yeah we have like this star-studded cast um but then also uh one thing that we noticed straight away from the get-go at least i noticed was that there's this huge diversity in experience as well um we have amy la palma who's playing anne hathaway shakespeare's wife and she you know total veteran has worked in so many shows i've seen her work yeah. so many times and to see how she works in the room is a total privilege and total um inspiration mm. um and then you know i feel like i walk in and i'm like all Woo, let's go yeah. <laughs> um but then i i can see rob doing the same thing and then i can see everyone's own version of like how they come in and what they bring and how they use that and how that also comes into their work and how it infiltrates you know their performance and all of that yeah. because is it your debut like as a show at this yeah, level yeah for yeah for me definitely this is my professional debut congratulations is... <laughs> thank you i mean you know not a bad, not yeah. a bad show to make your debut with so it's a total total honor total honor to be doing it are you both bringing anyone along to opening night or whatever that you're nervous to have <laughs> Oh, no. I mean, we are, of course, yeah. bringing people on. Um, Can I have a slither um, of your of confidence? Friends, two of my best friends are going to be there. One of them uh, introduced me to Anne Juliet a few years ago um, and was like, there's this one character that reminds me of you. And I was like, really? Oh, cool. <laughs> and now to be able to play that character in the show. Uh, so she's very excited. Um, and then, of course, our family will, will be there. And yeah. Yeah. Really and they'll be media uh, uh, what news crews I suppose will be yeah, taping one or two maybe yeah <laughs> so we're gonna kick off this week yeah oh how exciting and just do you have any routines at this point of the you know getting any quirks or any uh, superstitions <laughs> about performing um well one thing I find because I like you know I have my own watch jewelry etc that I wear and one thing that this costume designer um Paloma has done is every costume every character even all the players have intricate intricate costumes with so much detail in like wristbands tattoo sleeves necklaces etc so Francois wears a whole bunch of rings wears a huge chunky white Casio watch um and has these beautiful bracelets so like I love taking off my Accessories, Gash's accessories, and then popping on front wires. Also a chunky, um, chunky necklace as well. We love it. Yeah. Gets you in character. Yeah. And just finally, is there a, what song in the show that is your favourite that you're not a part of? Oh, that's a tricky one. Um, it's got to be. It's my life. Oh, really? Yeah. Judging each other now. No, I'm in that one actually. So <laughs> right. um, I think for me. Baby, one more time. It's oh. like the third song of the show, and you'll see Lorinda May, Mary Paul, 
who plays Juliet. It, I think it's one of the. I think it it's will just take your breath away. Yeah, mm. she's we, such a superstar. We kind of come into the show maybe 15, 20 minutes in, um, so we've been able to watch that in its full glory with all the production elements and. It's I, beautiful. People are going to lose their minds. Maybe not on show night, though. You'll be too nervous, no, I imagine. No, yeah. definitely not on show night. <laughs> and Juliet, a new musical. It opens February 26th at the Regent Theatre. For further information, please head to andjuliet.com.au. We've been speaking with stars of the show, Jesse and Yash. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank Thanks you. So See you at the theatre. <laughs> Triple. Ah. Uh. Jana Favero is formerly the Advocacy and Campaigns Director and is now Director of Systemic Change at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, the community-led not-for-profit famously committed to upholding the human rights of all people seeking asylum. After 21 years of operation, ASRC has announced it is in crisis and launched the Save the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre campaign. And to tell us about what's behind this urgent appeal, the tireless and always bedazzled refugee advocate joins us now. Jana, welcome back to Breakfasters. Oh, thank you for having me on. I wish it was in happier times, but really appreciate you asking me in today. Absolutely. Well, tell us about developments at the ASRC and the environment in which you're operating. So we are operating in an extremely challenging environment. As you noted in the introduction, ASRC has been around for 21 years and our role has always been to really fill gaps in public policy. So as long as refugees and people seeking asylum are denied their basic rights, we need to exist and we still need to exist. We are fiercely independent. We're proud of our independence, which means we don't accept any federal government funding. So we rely on community donations to to keep our doors open. And at the moment, during a time, of mortgage, you know, interest rates increasing, cost of living pressures, meaning things cost a lot more, coupled with um, new Labor government and people assuming that things had progressed much faster than they had, we have seen an absolute dive in our donations. And we don't have that federal government funding to be as sort of a, um, a safety net for us. So we noticed this starting to happen in July. We had a round of redundancies in August and had 10% of redundancies in August. And then since then, our fundraising has just really, really decreased. Just as an example, in December, when we ran our food drive this year, the previous year, we had 400 cars that dropped off food. This year, we had 30 cars mm-hmm. of food. So it's just been an absolute decrease. We did have reserves to cover for times, but as those reserves of decrease and decrease and decreased, we were facing a situation where we literally would not have enough money in the bank to be providing for all the services that we need to. We have an obligation to our staff and to people who we serve. So we've just had to pull, unfortunately, um, this trigger with an emergency appeal and going out to the community who has kept us surviving for 21 years to ask um, so we can avoid closing our doors. The risk is very real um, of us closing our doors if yeah, we can't raise enough you, money. You were just saying a little bit about the sort of potential circumstances that have led to the decline in donations, but what is the outlook at the moment and how much longer can SRC stay open under the current circumstances? Uh, so when we launched the appeal a week and a half ago, we had um, six weeks to raise enough money. So I think we're entering into about four weeks to be able to raise it. The response has been incredible, I have to say. Like it's, I've been reading through the donations that have been coming through and there is so much love and respect for the organisation because we still have so much work to do. We always wanted to close our doors on our own terms, meaning we no longer needed to exist because refugees and people seeking asylum had all their rights upheld and could access all the support that they required. But as long as that doesn't happen, we do need to exist. So we've got about four weeks. If we do raise enough money, we will close the, the appeal 
appeal, but we're not there yet. Mm. So um, it's still the, – the risk is still very much there. And for people who are first-time donors, maybe this is their first kind of um, time hearing about uh, the organisation, what would their donation um, be going towards? So we currently support 7,000 people seeking asylum and refugees who live in the community and we support them with services that they can't access anywhere else. So at the moment we are housing about 400 people who if we weren't able to provide that accommodation they would face homelessness and destitution. We provide um, fortnightly groceries through our community food program to 1,700 people a fortnight. We really, we're, we're people's pharmacy, we're people's doctors, we're people's dentists, we're people's groceries like that is what ASRC is to people seeking asylum and refugees because they don't can't access a safety net they can't go anywhere else and, and so that is what people will be supporting is not just the delivery of those services but we are so much more than a charity because we are a place and a space and hope and welcome and compassion and also the the meal at the end of the day for people seeking asylum and refugees. Yeah, basic human rights. That's right. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned people taking or donors maybe taking their foot off the gas because the of some good news. Can we outline some of the recent developments in the refugee space that's been significant that you've observed? Yeah, most significantly, um, just over a week ago, the government lived up to its pre-election commitment and a long-standing commitment that had been part of their platform, the Albanese government, and have granted permanency or transitioning to permanency for 19,000 people who were subject to fast track. That is, it, it's momentous. Like, that is the most significant positive refugee policy change in 15 years and we can't understate that. Um, So while that is really great for those 19,000 people, there are still about 70,000 people seeking asylum in the community in Australia who that announcement does not impact and that's the sort of the majority of people who we work with who can't access a safety net. But while they've certainly been that change has been amazing. It has also taken dedicated advocacy, bravery and resilience of refugees for over 10 years to get that change. Mm. So even we are still hopeful that will be um, the catalyst for more change, but until we get to that point, organisations such as ASRC need to exist. Can you paint a picture of maybe an individual's uncertainty or the sort of uncertainty that can cloud a life that the ASRC stands behind and supports? So generally when someone is seeking asylum, they're put onto what's called a bridging visa. Now that bridging visa is only a temporary visa in Australia. So while they're navigating that complex legal system that can take 10 or 12 years to have a resolution, so just for a start, it's 10 or 12 years until you maybe um, recognise as a refugee to find out if you've got that future. During that time, you can't reunite with your family. The Those visas are really, really prohibitive. A lot of people don't have the right to work on these those visas. They don't have any access to a safety net, so social services. So when I mentioned the people who we're providing food to, over 85% of them have no income at all, either because they can't work because they don't have the right to work or because they can't find a job because they're on a three or five month visa and people will want to employ someone who they know is going to stay in the country. So we've got the temporary natures of these visas. They're completely prohibitive. People seeking asylum refugees on those visas couldn't access Job Seeker during COVID. We know how critical that was for so many people. So you're locked out of a safety net. You're denied basic rights such as right to work. You can't be reunited with your family. You don't know what your future is. And so it is constant uncertainty and limbo, not to mention that you've fled persecution in your home country where your family probably still are and are extremely nervous about them. Just imagine someone in Iran or Afghanistan at the moment thinking about what's happening in their home country. 
So it's uncertainty on every single level. If you get sick, you probably won't be able to access Medicare as well. So it's just... I think it's also another education point is, to, is that a lot of people don't realise that there are many tens of thousands of people in our community who are living in this situation, who just have nowhere else to turn because they're denied those basic rights. Yeah, and the passion to contribute and being denied. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we, we have an employment program. We have people who want to work. We recently did an event in Parliament House around right to work. It's one of the biggest things we're advocating for. We've got skill shortages in Australia at the moment. We've got tens of thousands of people in our community, many who have the skills in our skill shortage area, yet the only reason they can't contribute is because they're prohibited to because of the nature of their visa. Mm. Uh, can you say, uh, speak to systemic change? You're the Director of Systemic Change. What does that mean in how does it relate to what you're trying to achieve? So at ASRC, we obviously provide, as I mentioned, we're people's groceries, we're people's doctor, we provide services to, to meet people's immediate needs because their rights are denied. But we don't want to keep having to do that. We don't want to having to keep raising money to do emergency appeals. We want to have that systemic change, the structural change that means people seeking asylum refugees' rights are upheld and that they can access all the services that they want. So last year we did a consultation with people seeking asylum refugees and said, what would be the biggest policy change would have the biggest impact on your lives? Because they're living it. They're the experts in knowing what change, such as right to work, such as Medicare, would lead to the biggest impact in their lives. Now, because the last 10 years has seen a total decimation of the rights of people seeking asylum refugees, we had 65 pages of things, which are pretty much my job, in systemic change to work alongside people seeking asylum refugees to advocate for that change that means that they can rebuild their lives. They're not prohibited from engaging fully in the community because all of their rights are met. So that means everything from, you know, during the election, we ran town hall meetings with the different candidates to find out where they saw in refugee policy. Um, two weeks ago, I was fortunate enough to support Peru's Bachani in Parliament as he addressed did an address in, in Parliament House. We have petitions. There is a bill at the moment for Parliament evacuation to safety, which, if passed, would see the 150 people still trapped on Papua New Guinea and Nauru brought to Australia to be transferred while awaiting resettlement outcomes. And that's the sort of work that we're doing in systemic change. It's trying to influence policy and decision makers to... Um, enable refugees and people seeking asylum to have their rights yeah. upheld. So all the good news and progress is the result of the hard work of organisations and people like the ASRC, which is why we need to get behind you now. What can we do? Oh, the most important thing, and I know it's hard to ask for in these times, is is monetary donations. We do have, on all over our website, you'll see our emergency appeal because we just need to get enough money in the bank to avoid closing our doors. And we, we really grew substantially during COVID in response to, you know, having to do home delivery. So we know that this lifeline that we get by being able to avoid closing our doors means we need to look at a sustainable future. So we do need to resize and restructure. and we're, uh, We need the money now to give us the next few months to really plan and look at what the future of ASRC is. But monetary donations are the most important thing. Otherwise, if anyone has any, any businesses or partnerships, I mean, we spend $166,000 every year just on basmati rice. So if anyone out there has any connections, but food donations, we spent $70,000 per 
per month just on food to provide those fortnightly groceries. So um, cash donations are the best thing, but there's also other in-kind things, especially around food, that would help alleviate the amount of money we need to raise. All right. Well, the Save the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre campaign is on now. For more information, head to asrc.org.au. And we've been speaking with Director of Systemic Change at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, Jana Favero. Thanks very much. Thank you. Triple R. I was in the park yesterday playing a spot of table tennis, which was lovely, beautiful day, but I couldn't help but notice, you know, the yellowing of the leaves in the trees, you know, just gently falling. And it, yeah, it struck me we're in late summer, you know, these days, not numbered, but you know, <laughs> it will come to an end. And it got me thinking about things that I want to do before the end of summer. Oh, yes. And definitely on my summer bucket list is going to a water park. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So what water parks are available for us? More than you think. Wow. Yeah, there's plenty around. I think I've settled on the water park in Geelong. It looks great. There's one in Whittlesea. There's one in Narry Warren. I don't know now, I, but there's plenty. Um, I think some are a bit more catered to small kids. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what. I find water parks just quite amusing and also, I don't know, I think it's this, like, thing in me as a kid that I never – I like, I never quite got to go oh, to them. Oh, so they weren't a feature of your childhood. And so this is a, an opportunity to kind of recreate some of the memories. Maybe. Okay. I'm not sure. But I mean, as a 37-year-old, I'm still desperate to go to water parks. I don't know what that says about me. No, but I mean, it I, says you're enthusiastic about the pleasures that water parks yeah, have to offer. Yeah, I've never quite had my fill. I guess we used to, we had family in Byron Bay growing up. And so we would go to Crystal Castle instead of the water parks um and i would always pretend to be fine with it for some reason it's something <laughs> like i suppressed and they're like oh do you want to go to sea world i'd be like nah i don't know why <laughs> it was like i'd like played it cool as a kid and almost and, too cool yeah way too cool and now as an adult i'm like get me to the <laughs> water park and i haven't been to one in maybe like 15 years the last time i went to one was the one in geelong but perusing the the interweb uh, for, for the different water slides, I was struck by um, the names of the water slides. And I do, do think that we need a bit of a refresh or rebrand on our approach to naming water slides because it's all the same rule of thumb. It's like every snake you can think of. So you've got the python, you've got the constrictor, um, boa constrictor and then you've just got the classic natural disasters there's still the tornado cyclone tsunami volcanic eruption the kraken racer the kraken i googled apparently is a sea monster yeah. yes indeed from yeah. scandinavia yeah um you've got the typhoon and then you've got a sprinkling of the pirates cave so the proximity of water slides to f sources of anxiety and fear yeah are quite close and then it's like you've got one end like the chaos and it's like in this day and age with you you know the climate crisis it's like maybe let's move away from the natural disasters snakes yeah it's fun but you know i just think we can kind of expand on this and then you've got the opposite end of the spectrum so it's like either chaos and fear typhoon <laughs> tornado or you've got the lazy lagoon oh, or right. the, the sluggish slide like oh you're boring if you don't want to go on the slide you yeah. big slug go and lie in a heap under a tree <laughs> it's like there's no middle ground 
And so, yeah, I've just kind of have been racking my brain a bit of like what could be this new approach to maybe mm. naming water slides if I was to open a water park. Yeah. Big dream. Is there an area of do you think that's fertile for water Well, yeah. These, so initially I thought, okay, like can we like just find something in the middle, like really mediocre descriptions, like I don't know, a name of someone's pet, like because you were talking about the dog names, Luna and, mm. well, yeah, what did I have here, I think, um, just kind of like – unassuming like meek molly or modest you know but i was like no while that's kind of fun because it's like going against like the water slide kind of branding i thought that you still want a sense of kind of danger to it or you definitely don't want emotional neutrality for your water slide exactly yeah i thought oh that's that's an idea but no we're not there and then i started thinking about the shape Mm. you know what else is cylindrical um, cardboard tubes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so what would you wear with cardboard? Cardboard tube, tube, tu- the tubular. Totally tubular, of course. Yeah, there's batteries, yeah. there's bottles, there's cans. There's All right. Like, what about um, like the fire, uh, no, the fire hose? The fire hose, yeah, that's good. Because it's like out of control <laughs> and it's gushing. Yeah, yeah. But it also has positive associations Fu- exactly. as well. Exactly. Yeah, fire hose. Because we're duty. rescuing and. Indeed. Mm. Yeah, I like that. That's mm. a sense of drama that the staff at the fire hose slide or pool could be like in uniform. But then again, I suppose, yeah, in, we are talking emergency services as well. So perhaps. And then moving back in into that sort of. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> what about the birth canal? Oh, yeah, wow. Yeah, that could be. I mean, maybe that's beautiful... more one of the uh, m- one of the more relaxing ones for the for yeah, the person or who's... absolute chaos. Oh, it's obviously <laughs> yeah, chaos uh, for the actual absolute opposite yeah. ends. Um, the names is oh, there's uh, the crazy hose is a suggestion from a listener. Oh, okay. Where yeah, where the crazy hose? Yeah, like hose as in a. Fire, Fire, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was hearing a pun on crazy horse. Okay, yeah, I like that. Yeah, um, the birth canal and the crazy horse. But if they were named after just regular things, Mm. I I don't mind the idea of that. I know it seems unimaginative, but I like the idea of the infrastructure speaking for itself. Yeah, okay, sure. Mm. Like I'll meet you at Betty. Betty, yeah, I like that. And then there's something almost. Um, menacing in a fun way yeah, about, about getting Betty. yeah about getting thrown yeah. all over the joint with Betty. They're pumping the water extra hard on yeah. Betty. That says it. But I did land on as well. I thought um, something that is lots of cylindrical and mm. um, conical. These are fun new words I found. Um, a musical instruments. Oh, like okay. a clarinet. And I thought, I yeah, I was thinking they kind of sound fun, like the boogle, the French horn, the bassoon. Oh, I'd like to get shot out of a bassoon. Yeah, see, <laughs> the blue bassoon. Betty the bassoon, Yeah, too much? Maybe, maybe it's it. too much. Yeah, okay, or the tuba, tuba saxophone. Yeah, this is where I landed. But people who are literal want to see the water slide look like a bassoon. Yeah. I mean... You could do something like that. You could kind of like... Because I think, yeah, that's like the conical shape, like the wider... Oh, yeah. ...kind of cylinder. So maybe we'd... In an ideal world, yeah. you'd be kind of hung out on a string and then dropped uh, through. That does sound like an ideal world. <laughs> dropped through into the slide. Triple R. 
You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of The Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website. <laughs> <laughs>